Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by, well, you, actually. We've been reflecting on the podcast, its history, and the incredible feedback that we've received from listeners across the world, and we're absolutely floored by how many of you really care. And it takes a lot of energy and brain power and effort to put this podcast out while we're simultaneously growing positive energy, but we could not be more thrilled about each one of you out there listening and participating in this incredibly important discourse that's so badly needed in our industry. So here's the only thing that we're asking of you. Please take a moment, go to iTunes and give the podcast a review, and then send the podcast to someone you think might care. Our audience only expands as the reviews come in and more people are out there sharing. You all mean the world to us and we can't say thank you enough. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to for quite a long time. One great way to understand what we've been talking about on this podcast, building science, is to put it into a larger context. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start like this. One way to put it into context is for you listeners, take a moment and look at, find some object in the room around you. Like it could be your keys, your sunglasses, your cell phone, maybe the room itself, any physical object and think about how did it come to exist? How did it come to be there? What sort of resource and information flows were involved in that? And even information flow, I've been enjoying a Stanley Cup game recaps recently since I don't have any cable TV, and even the information flow, right? Somebody had to collect that video and put it online so there's energy involved. So ultimately, all these things rely on a vast and complex interconnected web of resource and energy flows and building science is no exception, right? What we're doing is we're studying the application of physics and engineering to architecture, right? And architecture being the conception, production, and operation of buildings and homes. So building science classically is, you know, we look at the enclosure, the mechanical systems, the climate as a system, and more progressive thinkers like positive energy are putting the occupants health and comfort as a system in there and also of course the systems of professionals right architects owners developers builders appraisers underwriters the subcontractors all of those people are an interconnected system of systems so it's all connected nothing stands alone it's all again a vast and interconnected and complex web of resource and energy flows And as such, building science is an application of systems theory, or a systems theory approach to buildings and homes. And here's where we start to get into today's subject, right? So systems theory or systems science is is an interdisciplinary study of systems, right? They are interrelated, interdependent parts. Changing one part of the system affects other parts. Um, And what we want are positive outcomes. We want to learn how we can change and adjust the systems to get what we more of what we want and less of what we don't want. Um, and so when it comes to building science, we talked about what the main systems are. They're 
the people, the buildings, the environment. And so basically we're studying the interactions of living beings and their environment, which is ecology. Um, you can Google ecology or wiki it and you'll see, let's see, here it is. Ecology is the scientific analysis and study of the interactions of organisms, so we could say living beings, human beings, and their environment. So when we take systems theory and apply it to ecology, um, at least I'm going to say we get something called systems ecology. And that is where I'm going to introduce our guest today. We have the honor to talk to Dr. William Bram. He's a professor of architecture at the University of Pennsylvania. And he runs the Curriculum and Research Center uh, in Environmental Building Design. We had the honor to meet him through one of his students, Elena Zambrano, who works with Overland Partners. And we have the honor to work with them. And I think he, you came to one of our happy hours and we gave beer to you and your students. Is that right, Bill? It's always a great way to meet. <laughs> and did I say it right? You're a professor of architecture at what university? Yes, University of Pennsylvania. Okay, good. All right, so um, is, would you like to introduce yourself uh, any more fully than that, Bill, or is that fine? Um, you you ha have asked me, you know, where this work falls, and maybe that's not a bad way to give a short introduction. You know, not, not the bio, but um, about 15 years ago, I co-edited a book with a colleague called Rethinking Technology, um, which was a book for architects uh, looking at theories of technology and architecture or architecture and technology or even things a little bit outside that. And um, our broad argument was that uh, something new had come up in architectural thinking well, thinking in general in the 20th century, which was understanding things as systems. And so we collected lots and lots of examples uh, of that and put that together in a book, which has actually been pretty successful. Um, and it got me thinking, uh, one, more broadly, and two, reconnecting up with uh, the, the, the little bit of engineering background I have um, and was the beginning of the program I teach, the research unit I run, and, and so forth, which... Um, when I first finished that project and thought to try and organize this more concretely for architecture students, I went back to find Howard Odom's book that I remembered from the 1970s, which conveniently was reprinted in 2007, called Environment, Power, and Society, um, specifically because I remembered the diagrams that he had developed. He had developed a whole system of diagramming, uh, and that really mm -hmm. began the project that we're, we're talking about today, the, the, the book I published, which comes out of a program that I teach, and in particular, a course I teach called Ecology, Technology, and Design. And Odin both sits at the heart of it and has also allowed us to do what I think architects do very well, which is to see lots of connections between things, to understand that buildings sit at the middle of lots of different scales of interaction. And if I can, you know, be the professor for 10 seconds, um, Christoph, you said everything is connected, and that's true. Um, but I think the uh, uh, more important thing that we realize once we get documenting these things is, although everything is connected, some things are more connected than others, and it's understanding what those are, what those, uh, you know, which things matter the most to the to the topic you're interested in. So obviously, I'm mostly interested in buildings, so I go looking for exactly that. What are the causes? Why are buildings the way they are? Why do they do what they do? How could they be done 
or how could they do things differently? Mm-hmm. And with that, everything's connected, and yet some things are more connected than others. Can you give an example there with a building? Um, yeah, well, with buildings, well, on the one hand, I like to I, I, I say this a lot, that um, you can build a, you know, an incredible, say, positive energy building. You know, you've, you've done everything uh, that you know correctly, but if you build it in the wrong place uh, or for the wrong purpose, um, it, it can all be a waste. Meaning literally right. if there's nobody to use it or if it uh, requires so much use of resources in order to, to get to it, to use it, you've lost sight of what you were trying to do. And I'm not talking about any specific project, but just the fact mm -hmm. that um, when we as architects start our, our work, we are correctly concerned with the building kind of as an object. You, know, you draw a boundary right around it and say, we just want to track how much energy and how much, how many materials and how well will it serve the client, all of those kinds of things. But you do have to keep your eye on a whole larger set of, uh, of causes. And I would also say effects. So something like global climate change is the result of the, the cumulative result of lots and lots of tiny individual decisions. Um, mm -hmm. And it's easy to miss the point when you're looking at just a building and thinking about you know, the relative cost of making some improvement or another. So global climate change is actually a perfect example of seeing uh, the, the, you know, the relation of parts in a system to the, to the total ecology. I get it. Yeah. So if you did a net positive energy building, however, it was a two hour one way commute to the nearest grocery store yes. and there was no public transportation or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good example of how the systems ecology perspective can inform your view of the world, right? It's, it's cycles and systems and networks. Um, and that was Odom's, Howard Odom's um, majesty. Actually, let me interject here, make sure listeners have heard. So we're talking about Howard Odom. The book is Environment, Power, and Society for the 21st Century. That was the revised version. It's tremendous. Uh, it's not made to be a page turner, but it's definitely uh, worth taking a look at. And coming out of that, applying that to architecture, Dr. Bram has written Architecture and Systems Ecology. And that book, for me, it just was a jaw dropper. I mean, it it has absolutely changed my um, my relationship with the world. Like, I drive around, I when I'm flying, you know, across transatlantic, my mother happens to live in Europe. It's just like, think about everything as these... Um, resource flows and energy flows. Um, so one of the challenges when we're thinking about that way, when we try to think about the interconnections, right, Bill, is that it's not always the same units. Um, it's hard to find a common unit to do the math in. Is that it? Is that an accurate way to talk about? Yeah, and I think um, before we jump all the way there, let me say, you know, what Please. what the way I often explain systems ecology, and I should say. My discovery of Howard Odom was very much what you just described. I mean, I love hearing you talk about the book that way, and every author loves to find a real, find real readers. But Odom had very much that effect on me. Just, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't recognize that, whatever yeah. that, yeah. that possibility, that formation, uh, and so on. Um, but I think just to put all of this in perspective, Howard Odom often credited. Uh, 
I won't go into the whole long history, but he credited a number of people who came before him in the 1920s and 30s who recognized first that natural selection, the stuff that everybody was worrying about and is the reason ecology even exists as a science, right? Because species evolve um, in response to pressures of one kind or another from their environment. But very quickly people realized the environment itself changes and species actually work to change their environment. And, and humans are not the first species to change the environment. We've just been the most recent and the most successful at it. Um, but uh, the key breakthrough for, for Odom or the thing that got him started on his career was a, um, another scientist who recognized that if he tracked initially food exchanges, who eats who, where does the waste go, et cetera, and, and ultimately tracking energy exchanges, uh, that you could reveal the structure, organization, and, and ultimately even the sort of development or evolution of, of different systems. Those guys were looking at, you know, forests and wetlands and kind of classic ecological mm -hmm. situations. But basically, the, they found that if they kept good track of who ate what, where did their waste go, uh, somebody spent some time making something, some creature spent time making something that provided a habitat for something else, all those kinds of interrelationships, they got a picture of the working of the ecosystem that they hadn't gotten by any other form of observation. And Odom started from there and just took off. He, he recognized that it applied just as well to human constructions as it did to, to uh, uh, We'll say, you know, in, not inanimate, but but unconscious uh, systems. Although maybe they're not wholly unconscious. Um, <laughs> but he, um, so he literally proceeded from that long chain, and ultimately realized that energies came in different qualities. And we know this, um, you know, that uh, if you're trying to run your computer, having a container of hot water is no particular use. It's just not a high enough quality form of energy to run your computer. Uh, and vice versa, you could say using electricity to make hot water is kind of throwing away some incredibly high quality, very portable, very flexible forms of energy. So he, um, by tracking this stuff in systems, developed a way to, to describe the difference in qualities among kinds of energy. And broadly speaking, in fact, this I think was his first big uh, principle or statement of principle on his own, Broadly speaking, systems are doing whatever they can in order to maximize their power, to concentrate and increase the useful forms of, of energy and resources that they have available to them. Uh, and they do this at all different scales. And, you know, you could look at human society as a whole and, and recognize that tendency. And I was really struck the other day. I've been reading uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's, um, it's a revised novel of his called The Green Earth. And in it, he just notices at one point, it's very much a, uh, a, it's actually a great novel, recommended highly, and it's making real um, the sort of human dimensions of, or of some climate change effects. But he has a couple of scientists sitting around realizing that individuals within the system can notice what's happening, but the system itself doesn't, is not aware of what it's doing. Nobody planned for it to do it, and yet, by the collective actions, like the invisible hand of the market, the system is pushing to maximize its power. So that was his first really big principle. And in with, with variations, 
most ecologists will agree with the statement that that statement that ecosystems uh, of all kinds, including ones with humans in them, are maximizing something like power. So they. What does that mean exactly? Maximizing power. So I know power is the rate of energy transfer. Right, and so it's a big. It's really important to distinguish between uh, energy and power. Energy is the you know the amount of capacity you have to do work, but if you Take that. Take my favorite example, which I've stolen from others. Of uh, you know, you have a you have a you have a pile of wood, uh, and you know you're facing a cold night, and you have two choices. One is to build a shelter with the wood, and the other is to burn the wood and make a make a fire. Well, stretching that that analogy out, if you um, build the shelter, the shelter can only hold so many people. So that shelter can keep, we'll say, ten people warm for as long as that shelter lasts, we'll say, you know, 25 years. Um, but if you burn the wood, you can keep 10 people warm for, let's say, a week, or you could keep a thousand people warm for one night, maybe not a thousand, 500 for, for a night. So the, the rate at which you're able to burn the wood is much greater, right? It has much more power um, or it can deliver that energy at a much faster rate. And it's also, you can choose what rate to do it at. So in that sense, the burning of the wood is a much more powerful enterprise, whereas the making of the shelter, which has a lot to say for it, and there's a lot of benefits to it, but it is something which is uh, operating at a lower power level. It's delivering its value at a lower level over a much longer time. Um, and, you know, in one another example that I think helps uh, a lot is we we all every day all the time trade energy for power. Uh, so if you're driving your car to the market or riding your bike even, but pick pick your form of transportation. Um, if you go more slowly, your and this is within some restrictions of course and so forth, but sticking sticking to the gear ratios and all those things. But if you go slow, more slowly, you will get more mileage out of your gallon of gas. On the other hand, we all are weighing that against what are the other things I'm going to do with my time? How long do I want to take to get to the supermarket and so forth? And we all trade. We're like, man, I'm going to go a little bit. I'm going to go fast enough so it seems, you know, I make some calculation without thinking about it as a calculation about how fast I need to get to the supermarket and, and, and back. And we pretty much all, in, in almost all these contexts, push for more power and sacrifice energy or energy efficiency, I guess I would say, um, you know, up to some level, depends on the system and so forth. Um, so having power, uh, and in fact, Odom would say, uh, you know, this is what goes back to that, those first observations that this stuff is evolutionary in a very straightforward sense, which is that the systems that can command the most power win. And then not necessarily, they're not necessarily fighting with other systems, but they're simply growing faster, uh, obtaining, you know, getting to resources first, obtaining more resources. And this is, you know, arguably true, whether we're talking about, you know, algae in a pond or whether we're talking about, you know, just, uh, competing human civilizations. Um, and he, he was first writing this stuff in the 1970s during the energy crisis. And as much as he is an environmentalist, one of the things that, uh, a counterintuitive remark of his that that surprised and I think frustrated his students was it's crazy to simply um, 
pursue energy efficiency thinking that you're going to, you know, save the world or, or, or change the planet, if there's another competing group, and in his mind, uh, the Russians were the group that he was worried about, if there's another civilization that is willing to consume those resources at that rate, you have to recognize, so it doesn't mean you shouldn't be efficient, but it means you have to recognize that larger, that larger dynamic of, you know, one group versus another trying to, to, to balance their, uh, their relative power or their but they're race they're race to use the resources that are available to them. For some reason that reminds me uh this this like if if the US were to be um consciously deciding no no we're going to be moderate with our energy use and um the Russians you know take the lead in the world economy kind of reminds me of the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy meets Indiana Jones and he whips out his sword and he does this fancy thing and Indiana Jones just shoots him. That's <laughs> right. Like this, yes. Asymmetrical. <laughs> well, and, and it's all one, Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, just and, briefly, I want to I want to yeah. touch in a really cool metaphor that I read. I prepared for a presentation a while ago on the difference between energy and power. If you had roughly twenty four gallons of gas in a tank, obviously that represents a certain amount of energy. You can drive a hypermiler drove from Houston to Richmond, Houston, Texas, to Richmond, Virginia, on one tank of gas in a Camry, twenty four gallons. The same 24 gallons can take a dragster a quarter mile. <laughs> so you can see there's much more power. But back to your core message, I mean, it's it's so deep, and I really hope you guys listening can hear it, that we want to maximize power, and yet isn't it true, Bill, that um, that can lead to ecosystem collapse in some ways? That can lead to this powerful entity using up its fuel and then... Well, I think this goes to the puzzle. This goes to the puzzle, you know, we have as, you know, we'll say smart people thinking about uh, the implications because, and this is why I cited that Kim Stanley Robinson uh, Mm -hmm. observation, which is the system is blind. So the system is, you know, we're just tiny parts and cumulative parts of all this, uh, of these systems that we're working in. So, you know, Yes, we're doing this in order to understand um, where the things we work on sit, how they affect other uh, uh, other parts of the system. But we also, I think, it also means we have to be strategic uh, about what we do. We have to be clear-eyed uh, about um, the effect of our individual actions, the the kinds of levers that are available to us. So I don't think it means that. That, you know, you can't, that the systems don't change. But I think we do have to be clear that, you know, at some level, these things are always, we'll say, somewhat political, somewhat social, um, mm-hmm. certainly natural. Yeah. I mean, that those things are always uh, co-present. And we often, um, at least in my world, you know, it, it often, we often separate building science from other uh, ways of judging buildings. And I think part of the message of systems ecology is that those are, you know, those are all different aspects of the same endlessly endless set of experiments to figure out, you know, both what's the best way to build and what does the system want is a is a way to to think about it. The system will, whether we've designed the best possible building in the world, the system, meaning the collection of people and real estate rules and all of those kinds of things, will select the buildings that help it maximize its power whether the individuals making them or choosing them know about it in those terms at all so 
an energy efficient, you know, net positive energy building is actually only is 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 achieving its optimal benefit when it's done in a way that helps the system it's in maximize its power. Exactly, and but I would even I, I would I guess I would or, and I would jump up a I would jump up a scale, which is always a great tactic for somebody talking about things because um, um, I would go further and say so net positive, you know building, you know, we don't have to describe it. It's this almost perfect building. Right now, it has an additional value as an exemplar or as a demonstration of something that's possible to help move larger populations of buildings. So when I talk like this, it sounds as if all that matters is what's the norm or what, you know, the vast majority of buildings are built exactly to the minimum energy and other codes uh, that that are required. But if you're trying, if you think about how to shift that needle, um, then right, the, the value of that building is not just the energy it saves, but also its ability to show other people that it's possible to to to, to be a tool in changing codes and so forth. So fascinating. You've just moved to the realm of of information and human psychology, as uh, you've connected that to sustainability, right? Yep. And so the, back to your example, I mean, the, the difference between material resources and high quality fuels, I'm remembering it might be from your book, but I'm remembering that there's enough BTUs in all the world's oceans to power our global economy for you know many hundreds of years, but it's at a very low uh, exergy, a very low energy quality. So like you said, you can't run an economy off of that energy, but you can run an economy off of you know, relatively high voltage electricity that's moved through transmission lines. And now, so you have that building. So you had that pile of wood and you had a choice between burning it or making a structure out of it. And in our society, you know, we have glass skyscrapers, right? So it's obvious the choice there, it was burn the energy mainly. Um, the enclosure is mainly a suggestion. Um, and so can systems ecology help us define how good the enclosure should be relative to the energy it needs to produce shelter? Yeah, and before uh, before we jump to that, again, I'm using all these rhetorical tricks that, that lecturers do. But, um, Please, yes, I like that. <laughs> but before we jump to that, which I think is a, which I think particularly for your audience would be a really uh, yeah, kind of in, in, interesting point. Um, to put it in context, Odom's second principle, well, second and third, but his second principle was, you know, in the pursuit of maximum power, systems develop hierarchies. And we all recognize this. I mean, we or rather, we've all, we all, we see this everywhere. We certainly see it in every human society that's ever existed, that there are essentially specializations um, which, if they work together, increase the productivity, the, the size of the society that they're supporting, and so forth. Um, and though, you know, so if we start looking around, we recognize those hierarchies everywhere. Um, the classic one that we all learned in biology class is the, you know, the, the, the forest food chain, you know, from green plants to herbivores to carnivores, and they are mutually interdependent and mutually regulating. So, you know, the lion is not the king of the jungle. The lion is actually the feedback. It's like the thermostat for the 
for the jungle that keeps the population of herbivores from growing to a size that kills off all the green plants. My local, my local forest here owned by Swarthmore College um, had until recently nothing green below about six feet because the deer population here is radically out of control and the forest was dying. Um, so couldn't introduce either wolves or we used to have some wild cats here, couldn't introduce either of those back into the population. So they, they cull, the humans go out and hunt the deer back to a population that allows some trees to repropagate and so forth. So we look for the same kind, we see the same kinds of things happening in human systems, both hierarchies developing and also hierarchies getting out of balance. Um, and in our case, it might look like there are too many predators around, um, but that's perhaps for a different conversation. But to, <laughs> but to um, uh, so that was his second principle was that systems develop these hierarchies. Uh, they are both hierarchies for self-regulation and they're both hierarchies which produce at the high end, very, very valuable, very highly concentrated uh, either energy resources, food resources, concentrated materials, um, those kinds of things. So electricity is an example of a very, very highly concentrated resource. So it's both very expensive, and if you're just looking at it and thinking how to make life more efficient, you would get rid of electricity. But on the other hand, it's valuable as a tool and a regulator, and maybe information goes one step beyond this for the, for the total system. So second principle, first principle, maximum power. Second principle, hierarchies of energy exchange develop to regulate and support the whole system. And then his third late in life principle, which relates very much to buildings, was to recognize that similar to, but actually separate from this concentration of power um, were concentrations of materials or you know, purification and concentrations of materials, which yeah. happen in parallel. Um, so if you think about you know, any of the metals, which are just easy to see, look around the room you're in now, there's a bunch of metals. Uh, which we know took a bunch of refining from whatever ore they came from. So I happen to be looking at some aluminum, another piece of copper over there. So, you know, you look at, look at those and, right, it's pretty intuitive, right? It takes a bunch of uh, physical work. It takes a bunch of heat. It takes a bunch of chemistry. It takes a bunch of transportation to get that piece of purified metal to be there. So we, can, we keep track of that, and life cycle assessment keeps track of that. But what about the ore? Because the ore is actually a fairly concentrated version. The, the, that, that metal has been concentrated in the ore by a bunch of typically biological and geological processes. Um, so we don't go around. We could, if we had an unlimited supply of energy, we could simply filter the air or the dirt uh, or any or the seawater and, and ultimately concentrate out of it almost any material we want that, that's present in, you know, in background materials in the, in the, in the seawater, but it would take wow. an incredible amount of energy, but, you know, you would need an unlimited source of energy in order to do that work. So yeah, what we you, do you is say you can make steel out of seawater. Exactly. Can... Exactly. <laughs> but, but right. Where are you going to get all that energy? So what we do is we look for places in which the ecos, the, the, the global geobiosphere has done the work of getting it to a sufficient concentration that it's economical for us now to, to make those changes. And many people have pointed out that we're getting to the point with some of the metals, some of the things that we've been extracting as ores, that uh, human landfills are beginning to have concentrations of those materials that rival those in ores. So it may actually be 
economically worthwhile to start mining landfills instead of going out and mining, uh, you know, lower level ore concentrations out in wherever they're they're located. Um, Fascinating. And so, of course, you're you're touching in on fuels. Coal, you know, is is becoming economically uh, disadvantageous to go after, and natural gas is still okay for the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and those, and, and I mean, it's a, it's a big subject on its own and, and in a way more challenging um, because there have, there have, for over 150 years, there have been people who have been trying to directly equate energy with currency um, and to say, you know, that we should, our currency should be based on some energy unit. And really? at least from my reading, and I'm certainly not an economist, um, currency is simply uh, it's more powerful in a way it's more concentrated it's it, it's more fluid and so it, it actually does allow you know more all the time us to transfer resources from one place to another or the or the power to, to exchange those resources now no yeah. question currency can get out of sync i mean there are inflations of many different kinds it can get out of sync with the We'll call it the biophysical basis from which it's born, um, and you know, so some some parts of economic cycles can be can be understood in that way. Um, but we were trying to loop back, weren't we? I was doing this long uh, explanation <laughs> yeah, yeah. of Bodum's three points to try and get back to your question about building envelopes. Correct. Um, which I think, uh, again, I always approach this as an architect and. And to some degree, the envelope is one of the last things that we as architects really have something to say about. But even there, we have to turn to other experts all the time. Um, right. But we did a um, we did a study. Uh, the, the example that runs through the book is my house. I think it's inevitable that people who do this kind of work end up using their own house as case studies. Um, <laughs> and we have started applying this to other buildings. So this isn't just a, a personal story, of course. But um, but one of the questions we would like to answer is, you know, or one of the things we're always trying to answer is what things are worth doing or, or what things are more efficient and does looking at things in this broader context. Um, we haven't even introduced the concept of energy, which having done all this talking is probably simpler now, which is to say, yeah, if I was you... wondering when, I was like, how are you going to talk about your house? <laughs> um, so with all these examples, you know, whatever it is, coal or copper or whatever it is, if you just go through and there's some serious accounting here uh, and add up all the work you had to do and all the work that was expended to make the resources that you're using to make any given thing, doorknob, telephone, vinyl siding, uh, whatever it is, um, you can, you, you can, there's pretty simple math to put all of those in the energy units and the term a little bit unhappily that Odom coined for that is energy meaning quite sensibly embodied energy, but because the M and the N are so close, it, it, it can be a little bit confusing. But anyway, you, there's, there's good, pretty straightforward uh, algebra for adding all of that up. And it, it has two effects. One, you can, dis you can, by looking at the amount of energy, of the amount of stuff, work and resources expended to bring some product or service to the building, you can identify both their value and I mean that in two senses. One is the cost you had to pay for it, which is how we typically think of it, but also presumably or possibly the, its value to the building. And that's ultimately what we would like to know. It's not that we want to stop making buildings that are 
smart and sophisticated and able to you know do lots of uh, amazing things for us but that we want to understand both how to do that in the best way possible and how that can fit into a larger to, to, to larger ecosystems so what we do to, to, to think about this is literally add up everything that goes into every component the simple example which i uh, elaborated in, in the book was to ask which of the things of all the things in the building which of which things affect the the thermal comfort the temperature of the building and we're going to ignore humidity a little bit for a second uh, which i know you can't really do in texas um, but uh, if you just look at what does it take to heat a building and what does it take to keep a building cool my climate is here in swarthmore so it's a it's a temperate you know we have real winter or something like winter and something uh, a lot like summer and some swing seasons in between so we go through and with every component whether it's the building envelope um, sun coming in the windows uh, heat from a natural gas furnace uh, cooling heat removed using a typical air conditioning unit the whole spectrum of things right down to how much heat is provided to the building by the people who live in it digesting the food that they're fed and giving off giving off heat and so in each one of those cases you can go and add up all the things it took to bring that to this place to, to this building to, to have these effects and you can also then quantify how much of an effect they have in keeping the building warm or cool I won't obviously I can't do the math in a in a podcast but it's certainly in the book um, and really is just it really is just algebra um, the happy result for this building, and by the way, this is not a universal statement about all buildings. This is a, an analysis of this particular mid-century modern building built in Swarthmore, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, according to some very cool, but also you know very peculiar uh, approach to the climate. Um, and it turns out almost an order of magnitude or two greater than anything else that the building envelope is the single most effective way to keep the building warm or to keep the people in the building warm. Um, meaning you are spending fewer of your total resources per unit of heat that you provide to the building by building the, uh, by building the envelope. I'm flipping to look for the chart right now. Um, yeah. that's, that's considerably better than the um, sun coming in the window because both, there's not quite as, because the effect of envelopes is so big, but also because the windows themselves are a pretty refined and slightly expensive product and uh, considerably better than the heat that comes out of the furnace. The most expensive way to heat your building or the most resource intensive, we don't always pay economically for these things, but the most resource intensive are is the heat given off by people because ultimately that is Think about you. Could, if you call it a waste product, that's one way to think about it. But it's we're essentially burning this incredibly high-quality fuel, the food that comes through our retail food system. So that's that that's very expensive. So now the reason I qualify this by saying this is for this particular building. This building was sort of designed, uh, or it was designed with with principles you would recognize as passive solar heating principles, sort of present. It wasn't explicit, but you know if you Put on those glasses the building is actually reasonably well configured in those terms and we you know we insulated the heck out of it when we bought it and, and those kinds of things so what that what i'm getting at is that, that makes the the value of the envelope much much greater for heating 
uh, if we look at it for cooling, it is not at all well designed for cooling. In fact, it's really designed to be a box to trap heat. Um, and so the value of the envelope for keeping the building cool is about the same as the um, cost for using the air conditioner to cool it. So that is not an argument that this is that that air conditioning is good and you know heating with a furnace is bad. It's just that this is an envelope which we now recognize was not designed according to any principles that would help it uh, achieve cooling better. And you know there's a couple of simple things you would do in this kind of climate that that would kind of dramatically improve that. Um, but we were looking at an existing case study. Fascinating. So I, I, I have, living where I live in Austin, Texas, I have to go back into that about air conditioning and the enclosure because the enclosure here can actually keep the heat out, right? If I have high albedo roofing, if I have good shading on my windows, I mean, windows are going to exist because humans are in there and making yourself feel a, a sense of beauty and a, you know, whatever it is, that psychology aspect is important as well. So what about air conditioning versus enclosures? What about cooling them? Well, I, that's why I say, so this building was not, none of the things you mentioned or, or probably you know, could mention that, that you would do more as a matter of course in Texas to keep the heat out and allow buildings to, to, to do it. None of those are done in this house. It's almost impossible to get this house to ventilate um, you know, and so on. So, but th so those things would make a huge difference. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that um, is always helpful for students to, to, to recognize, and it, it takes architects a while to learn to think this way, but that in one sense, heating is kind of easy because, you know, there's lots of sources of heat or waste heat around sunlight and internal gains of different, of different sorts. And so you're designing just to hold on to that heat and you can keep a building warm that way. With cooling, every source of heat is your enemy or, or every source of heat is something you're trying to get rid of. So it's both a question of keeping the heat in the environment out, but it's also a question of getting rid of the heat that's developed inside the building. So those are both things that can be done obviously better than this house does and, and are practices that um, you would be pursuing in, in Texas. But it does get us to an interesting question, which a lot of my colleagues would step back from, which is there in a there is probably a place for um, that high uh, energy intensity, that 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 high value, expensive uh, cooling process that comes with dehumidification in particular, and and air conditioning more broadly. Um, there there probably is a role for some of that. How much? Uh, I actually, you know, one of, one of the things I would like to work on or have sort of on the list to work on is to do this analysis for building in a hotter, uh, more humid climate and to think it through more critically uh, from that dimension. Um, because, I, you know, the, the, the ethic that I often encounter among uh, ambitious colleagues is we've got to design purely for buildings to, to, to surf the climate. And I think that is absolutely the first place you start with any building design, both right. know the climate and know how a building can change its features either through the day or from season to season in order to, you know, ride those, ride those changes. But at what point is, so one of the questions we then want to ask is at what point is it crazy or two or more expensive to be investing in the envelope than investing in some other system? And it doesn't always have to be, classic mechanical 
air conditioning. Mm, it but, could be solar yeah, TV. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, uh, I, I have colleagues who are really excited, who, whose work has been focused on Singapore, but who are really interested in um, desiccant-driven systems. So right. solar-driven desiccant systems for removing humidity because they're already, you know, Singapore, there's already a cultural acceptance of a warmer temperature. Everybody just dresses for it. Everybody lives it. Um, but we all know that pulling the humidity down makes that, you know, makes that huge difference. Um, so if you walk in out of the street and you walk into someplace which is drier, and even if it's not radically cooler, it completely changes your experience. That's right. And it doesn't just make it better from a thermal comfort perspective, but as we know, the indoor microbiome changes, and that means different critters and different biology shifts when it's drier, and that tends to promote healthier indoor conditions. So it's it's all connected. We've just got our radiant system running here at the office, and that's a huge deal in the sense that to cool our building, we need a 60-degree supply of water, and to heat it, we need like a 90-degree supply of water. So suddenly, instead of asking my heat pump, you know, we have a very efficient VRF heat pump as a alternate system, but it makes 36 degree refrigerant yeah. in the summer and it makes 140 degree refrigerant in the winter. So instead of 36 and 140, now I have 60 and 90, but I still need to solve the dehue. Um, but I need to solve with much less air mass. You know, I just need it for drying and filtering and ventilating. I'm only moving air for that instead of air for as a primary heating and cooling source. So as you say, there's there's different energy uh, inputs into that, um, and I'm thinking we're getting close to the end here. Probably, you know, obviously there's so many um, different directions this goes, and I really encourage you listeners to read his book, Architecture and Systems Ecology. It's it should be required for anyone that has anything like efficiency or sustainability as part of their mindset or part of their mission statement. But you mentioned drawing the boundary and we talked about, you know, there's like the classic example from, maybe we can even put it in our show notes. It's from Odom's book where he has a house and he draws a kind of rectangle around the house and what's coming into the rectangle, so we're outside of the enclosure now, is uh, materials, it's fuels, so he's just using oil, it's groceries to keep the people alive, um, he didn't put information, which you touch on in your book, but so we'll skip information because he didn't. So he talks about materials, fuels, and groceries, and then you go into the house and you have the people that eat the groceries and they come back out fed and well-rested and they now have a job that gets them money that they trade for more um, fuel and more groceries and, of course, more wood for repairs. So you can see that cycle. Um... I guess there's not really a question here, but it, it talks, you know, this, he does it in illustrating it in his energy systems language, which is amazing. It's, and it's a great, no, it's a, it, and I think that might've been the diagram that made me realize, you know, oh my God, uh, this, this really could be uh, extended into architecture in a way that, that, you know, that, that answers a bunch of questions that aren't answered by other things. I'll make a, so one thing I can do is make a plug for the, Part of the subtitle of the book is uh, Site Shelter Setting. Um, and one of the things that doing this using his energy systems language and a lot of a lot of the conventions there are pretty intuitive, you know, 
stocks and flows and all those kinds of things uh, for people who thought about systems at, at almost any level. But one of the things that, that came clear after really trying to apply this was there are broadly, ske broadly speaking three scales of activity at which we can usefully and meaningfully um, analyze buildings. And I think this is kind of what I had in mind when I made the point that yes, everything's connected, but it's actually kind of lumpy, meaning that there are lumps of stuff that are meaningfully connected and they can be detached from, from, from their other connections in order to study them without doing a disservice, meaning you're finding kind of natural boundaries in there. Obviously shelter, the stuff we've mostly been talking about, building an envelope and doing different kinds of equipment to make people, make conditions that would make people comfortable, both thermal and uh, humidity and light levels, all those kinds of things. That's kind of primary job. Uh, it's what architects, I think, are best at. Uh, it's what we think of buildings as doing first and foremost. And so that's a very, well, it's well-researched, well-defined. It's what we mostly mean by building science is the things that go into that. Um, within that, I think there's a separate category of things that I'm calling setting because everything had to start, of course, with an S. But really have to do with what do people do inside <laughs> them, um, whether it's, you know, a business or a home and those kinds of things. And this has always been puzzling, or I think it, it, it makes energy analysis of buildings a little bit confusing because the rules for efficiency and relationship to the client that apply to the shelter don't apply to this stuff. It, 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 it does have its own logic. So you're ultimately asking, what do people do? What do they do with their time? What's the value? What's the economic value? What's the social value of them? I mean, it connects up to lots of other topics. So we can't just go in. In fact, I've had one of the examples. I had a colleague who called, former student, called me very excited. He's doing this deep energy analysis of the building he's located in, the University of Florida. And he said, I figured it out. We can, man, we can just really improve the energy footprint of this building if we just close it at 6 p.m. every day. If we make all the people go home instead of staying and working in the building. I was like, well, that's great. But, you know, what are they going to what are they going to do? He goes, well, the, I don't know. They'll all go home. They'll all go home and work there. I'm like, well, so there's still, it's one of those things that you can't, <laughs> you, you can't draw the boundary just around the people while they're in your building. You have to then see that other pattern. So that's a pro problem that slips out of the envelope of the building. And that's related to the, to the other one, which I think is also very familiar to people who think about buildings, which is again, what I'm calling site. Uh, and that has to do with both where you choose to locate a building and, and, and its capacities. And we all, projects we're involved in, decisions we've all made personally, all relate to this. You, you make some calculation about, if I live there, I'll have to commute this much, so there's costs involved with that, and I'll also have to pay these kinds of taxes, just to take the two really most obvious ones. And at least in my city, you know, if you move farther out, your taxes drop, at least, you know, there's certain boundaries. But if you move farther, your taxes drop, but your commute goes up. And so you're trying to balance those kinds of things. And if you're a business, well, I actually need to be near where there's lots of people and then the land is more expensive and the taxes are more expensive. So we don't, those are not a building design question. Those are a, you could call them a real estate question, but I think it's a city and self-organization question, um, which very much affects uh, broader issues of, of sustainability. So I think those are three kind of separate uh, scales, maybe inspired by Odom's, um, you know, 
people furnace and he even I think accounts for the rats that live down in the in the right. presumably in the basement of that of and that the termites house. that are eating exactly the exactly it's a great diagram yeah so the extra food so that's beautiful so site shelter and setting those three scales and it was actually that bill that really just uh, lit my mind up like a Christmas tree in the sense that I had been studying enclosures and mechanical systems and people so my box was just around that you know the house let's say or the building and to realize oh my goodness this building is part of a network part of a system and in fact even the interior of the building is is there's a system happening there um, yeah I think that's what's really profound and that that's why I consider it this the science of sustainability and I'm I'm sad to say I'd like to get your final thoughts if you could if if it's possible even to to synthesize all this about buildings and make some comment about maybe even something um, kind of crunchy comments about sustainability like you know I'll define it right the, the classic definition is that you and I and our generation lives in a way that doesn't impair future generations from having the same access to uh, you know, this lifestyle that we have. Well, the um, can your book comment on that? Can yeah, that? yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I'll say some things maybe that aren't in the book, and also maybe you know I, I tend to put things in three, so maybe I'll do that. But Odom, a couple a couple times made the remark that sustainability, as as he encountered it, which really of course is means sustainable development, uh, came out of that whole argument about population growth in the 1970s environmentalism. Um, but that uh, that sustainability sustainability writ large was really an effort to reproduce the climax forest, and I think it's both a really great model and there's also a caution that goes with it. And first of all, it's a fantastic model because climax forests, if you don't know the term, are you know temperate ones are the ones we think about mostly, but applies is equally to to rainforests. But these are hugely complex ecosystems that build up over you know many generations. Um, but in their in their mature form, uh, uh, achieve an almost perfect recycling of materials and use almost every bit of the energy that flows through them. They're primarily driven by uh, sunlight and and rainwater and, the two, and some nutrients that are brought in that, that that come in. So these are open systems. They only exist, of course, because there's this flow of energy. But what they do is they produce zero waste or virtually zero waste. And so I think that in a way that's the, um, that's the, the for me, the better uh, approach to sustainability, which is to, to eliminate all these, to find ways to close all the loops and eliminate all these forms of waste and pollutants and to live within the budget. We would not, I'm sure there, there are probably other limits beyond them, but we would not be struggling so hard with the fossil fuels if we were, if we, if we, or once we face up to and capture the CO2 or the carbon, uh, the, the greenhouse gas pollutants that they're emitting, or we would be approaching them very, very differently. We probably have heat it's effects. Kind of one powerful open loop that yeah. could be closed. And CO2 cycle. Yeah, and it's perfectly closable, and it would mean giving away some of the energy that we're pulling out of it, but arguably at a whole, it would make us more um, efficient. So I can close with my, the, Kind of the trilogy I often uh, try to pass on to students, uh, and I think the caution is that um, 
efficiency is not enough. I mean, efficiency is like our first tool as environmental designers, environmentally minded architects and so forth, but it is, um, it, it's never enough. Um, so I always say, um, first you start with efficiencies, then you look to renewable energies, and then you're ready to start thinking about paradigm changes. And depending on the scale, depending on what you're talking about, that can be lots of different things, but you know, so you're only going to get to that sustainability by thinking through all three steps. Beautiful. Efficiency, renewables, paradigm changes. Exactly. And that's what these ideas can do for us. And that's what, you know, people like you and I, one of the products that we hope to deliver, I believe, is uh, education and advocacy in pursuit of paradigm shifts, right? Perfect. It would be nice if solar panels and a net zero energy building was it, you know, <laughs> but it's not that case. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget, please leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. 